thank you once again for this opportunity to gather in your name to explore the life of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, we get the opportunity to look into your word, not only to what happened, but why it happened and how it applies to our lives. And I pray that you would help us each apply what we're about to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen and amen. Well, good evening and welcome to part six and our final part in this series, Rebel Jesus. If you enjoyed this series, I certainly have. And uh, this uh, part tonight, uh, it's entitled, Jesus Confronts Power. Jesus confronts power. Let me set the scene, if I could, as we take out our smart devices and notepads and pens. Feel free to do that. It's going to be up on the screen for us to follow through. But this is the last six months, all right? The last six months of Jesus' public ministry is in view. And we're going to open to Mark 9, just again in a moment. Thanks, Paris, for reading that to us. But it's also in chapter 10 where we'll see a series of lessons that Jesus taught his disciples. You see, the disciples, the disciples have a lot to learn. They're a little rough around the edges. Um, they haven't had a, a, a lot of education. And to be honest with you, the disciples are a little insensitive to people around them. They are also, I would call them, selective listeners. How many of us have family members who are selective listeners? My wife, please don't put your hand up. Thank you. <laughs> but the disciples are so uneasy at this period of history with all the talk about death. You see, they weren't ready for a suffering and crucified Messiah. And as we think in context here, in the light of everything that was unfolding, it seems absolutely crazy that they were discussing this question. Did you pick that up? Who is the greatest? That's what they were discussing. You see, this is the public ministry. Well, the public ministry um, in Galilee had ended um, for Jesus. And here they were, they find themselves traveling down to Jerusalem for Jesus to suffer on the cross, to die that criminal's death, raised on the third day. And this was predict, predicted uh, several times throughout his ministry. And so the focus of Mark, the focus of Mark was on the private ministry, not public, but the private ministry, his time with the twelve. And uh, we, we find Jesus teaching the disciples about his death and his resurrection. And next Sunday, next weekend, we get to uh, celebrate that. Of course, it's going to be fantastic. But in addition, there are things that the disciples need to know. And here's Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, teaching the disciples these lessons, once again, privately, not publicly, privately. And one of those lessons is this. Jesus confronts power. Everyone say the word power. Power. Jesus confronts power. Mark chapter 9, there's this dispute going on. There's an argument between the disciples and it's confession time. Yet, there is silence. 
Let's talk about context before we talk about the argument just for a moment. moment. Context is very important. Uh, the disciples uh, are still thinking politically about the Messiah. Let me explain that. You see, as men of Jewish background, they expect the Messiah will come as a political ruler who will overcome his enemies. At that time, it was called the Roman Empire. And so they're still thinking, the disciples are still thinking politically. Our Messiah isn't going to go to the cross. The Messiah that we know will set up his kingdom and his kingdom is immediately. But that's why they didn't get it or even like it when Jesus spoke of his own death. You see, when Jesus said, I am going to Jerusalem to die, it kind of went straight over their heads. They just didn't get it. It didn't register to suffer, to die. No way. Our Messiah is going to rule the world. And since he is going to rule the world, we want the best seats in the house. And so, what's the pecking order? What's the pecking order? All right, let's find out. Before we do, before we do, why the dispute? Why this dispute? Well, a, a bit of a surface answer if I could, and then we'll go a little bit deeper just in a moment, that everyone, everyone wants to be first. Not last. Everyone wants to be first. We want to succeed. We want to be recognized. It's the nature of each of us, isn't it? That we are dominated by this um, uh, five-letter word called pride. And that's the issue here. Now, that's the surface-level answer. I'm going to go a little bit deeper in a moment. But I, I do want to say this before I move any further. I don't want us to get confused by this. That Jesus isn't opposed to you and I pursuing greatness at all. I want you to know that. He wants us to achieve. But the way to do it, as defined by his kingdom, is what we are going to unfold tonight. You see, all of us, I believe, we have this great opportunity to do this. And I'm going to give a biblical definition tonight of the word greatness. And so everyone, before we go any further, say this with me. I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge. I've been reading 1 Peter 5 of late, and um, I'm just really getting into it. 1 Peter 5. And um, uh, we are charged with the responsibility to steward and to be responsible with what we've been entrusted to manage well. And 1 Peter 5 says that there is this chief shepherd, capital C, capital S, chief shepherd, that he is in charge, that he is the head and he is at the top. But let's think back. Let's come back to this passage that Paris has read for us, Mark chapter 9. That's where we're camping tonight. Let's just go back a few verses. She started at verse 30. Let's go back a few verses. If you've got your Bibles, you'll understand this because it says, um, it talks about the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, and what that means is that he became this radiant white, this radiant light. It was, it was quite the, spectac the spectacle. But the question I'm asking in regards to this is who did Jesus take up with him on the mount as he was transfigured? Three disciples by the names of Peter, James, 
and John, which is clearly there in Mark chapter 9. So he takes three, which leaves, if there's 12 disciples, 12 minus three, that leaves nine. I know you know that answer. You're pretty good. You're pretty, pretty quick in maths. So it leaves nine, right? And so let's just go, let's put our feet in their sandals just for a moment, if we could. If you were one of those nine, and the other three came back after a few days, you'd be kind of wanting to get up alongside these guys and ask, well, what happened? Come on, spill the beans, what happened? And all of a sudden, their return answer to you is what? Um, I, can't actually, I can't actually say. And so maybe, maybe, according to the nine, maybe, maybe these three were treated a little differently to us, which means favoritism. Favoritism's happening here. How come these guys always to get, get, uh, get to go into the house where Jesus heals somebody? How come these guys get to go on the mount and we don't? Now, the argument would naturally develop, wouldn't it? Who then? Who then? Who then out of us, out of us, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? Well, that's pretty easy. Peter, James, and John. They are the men. They're the men. No-brainer. So this dispute, by the way, doesn't, in fact, go away. In fact, we'll find out later on, we won't tonight, but we'll find out later on that the mother of James and John will come to ask Jesus a special favor. That I want my boys, one to sit at your right, one to sit at your left in the kingdom. Now, when the other disciples find this out, we taught that they can become a little bit, bit angry. You, you go to your mum, you go to your mum, and you, you, you talk to Jesus. <sighs> now, it didn't end there, in fact. But in Jerusalem, in the upper room, Jesus is pouring out his heart, and he's got to go to the, to the, to the length, of, length of, of washing their feet and do as I do. Uh, he goes to the length of breaking bread, which we will do just in a moment. I'll explain that in a moment. And they're still arguing. What are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? And of course, that's a no-brainer. It's Peter, James, and John. Of course, they're the greatest. Now, now, let's just calm down a little bit because it's important to understand, once again, context. Not only that, it's important to understand history. Because history would tell us that the disciples um, had terrible, terrible examples to look to and to look upon. Of what spirituality, in fact, looks like. And so they grew up, uh, of course, with Judaism um, and spiritual pride was a real issue. Now, the spiritual leaders of the day, of their nation, were men who called attention to their own spirituality. Ben talked a little bit about that in this morning's service. Exalting themselves above the people. And when it came time to give money in the temple, wait for it, wait for it. When it came time to give money in the temple, they brought out the trumpets, they blew the trumpets to call people's attention to their own giving. When they prayed in public, it was a very public setting with very long words, and it was impressive. And so these are the spiritual models that the disciples looked upon 
But, and keep, 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 in, um, um, keep remembering here that there's certainly no church. Um, there is religion. This, in fact, is religion as far as they know at its very, very best. These were the only examples that they had. What was it? It was men who exalted themselves, always arguing about who is the greatest. And so here comes a lesson. And Jesus starts from the cross. And so let's have a look verse by verse of what Paris just read to us here tonight. With Jesus as our supreme example of what true greatness is. Starting from verse 30 to 32. Here we go, once again. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. And here's your answer. All right, okay. Because he was teaching who? Everybody. No, he was teaching his disciples. This is the private ministry of Jesus. So he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is key, but they did not know, understand, they did not understand what he meant, and were even afraid to ask him about it. Okay, summary, they're heading in the direction of the cross. That was specifically on Jesus' mind. That's the direction that they are going. Now, this isn't public ministry anymore. We've, dis we've discovered that. This is private ministry. This is to the 12, and he's preparing them for their future. Not only, not only does he remind them of his death, he instructs them on matters related to the kingdom and related to kingdom, sorry, life in the kingdom. Why? So they can then therefore go and instruct others. Now they know, they do know, I want you to know this, they know he's the Messiah. They do know that he is the Son of God. He tells them that he is going to die, but they can't process it, remember? It's, um, they cannot comprehend it, that a crucified Messiah did not make sense to them. It was totally unacceptable to them. Verse 32 says, but they did not understand what he meant and were even afraid to ask him about it. Mm, we could go into that, which we won't tonight, because that question could go a couple of ways, but we won't. Now, if you look at the parallel um, gospel here, in the, we're, in, we're in Mark, right? If you look at Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew. If you go back to Matthew, you look at the parallel. Uh, Matthew describes how the disciples are feeling here is that they are deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. They are in denial. They reject a dead Messiah. By the way, press pause there for a moment. We're a little, we're a little the same, aren't we? When some certain news comes our way of terminal illness of a loved one, uh, maybe if I could speak personally just for a moment. The year was 1989. Hmm. And uh, I remember visiting the hospital of my own mother who'd been diagnosed 12 months before with breast cancer. I remember visiting the hospital with my twin sister. Just up here, I could take you to the exact room. Following her first of two major operations, 
And I was in denial as a 15-year-old young man, 15 years of age. I was so in denial that my mum was diagnosed. My mum, I knew she had an operation, but I didn't realise it was terminal. And 10 years later, I certainly realised the hard way because I hadn't accepted it and I was living in denial. And so that happens with us as well. Um, it was beyond their belief. The Messiah was um, killed by religious leaders, executed. They just did not get it. And so Jesus himself will be that illustration of true greatness. And of course, they don't understand that now, but they will in the future. Let's keep reading. Verse 33 says, and 34, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, in the house, asking the question, what, what were you arguing about on the road? Verse 34, what does it say? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest? Jesus here was met by embarrassing silence by the disciples they didn't want to admit what they were talking about. Now, what's interesting, once again, let's bring this home for a moment. What's interesting about this is when, when we forget, when we forget that he's around, what do you and I do? We'll, in fact, do and say things that we wouldn't otherwise do and say. But when we get that sense that he's right there, everything changes. And so the disciples didn't think that Jesus was listening in. Once again, let's come back. These guys are tired, right? They had traveled. This was a significant journey on their behalf. They had traveled mile, uh, miles, mile after mile, I was going to say. They had traveled a long way. And what they're experiencing, what we're experiencing here is an ugly discu discussion. In fact, it's, a, it's an embarrassing discussion. Not only that, it's destructive for the unity of the disciples and the mission. And what Jesus comes in and does, he exposes that. Yet they didn't want to admit that. Why? Because they're still self-seeking, they're still highly competitive, and struggling with that question, which one of them is the greatest? Picture this for a moment, let's bring it home, let's bring it home. Picture that one moment with your group of friends, with your group of friends. Having that same discussion, you just wouldn't, would you? I mean, it's just, it's just well, some of you might, but uh, it's, it's just not appropriate. It's just not appropriate, is it? Let's come back. Verse 34, what did they do? Verse 34, they kept quiet. They kept quiet. Why? They were ashamed. They were embarrassed. They knew that what Jesus had exposed in and of them was the wrong attitude to be one of his followers. And so Jesus had just spoken about his own humiliation and all they could think about was their own exaltation. And so proud and self-seeking, they were getting their last lesson before the cross, on humble service. Can I just press pause there just for a moment? 
do you mind if I just quickly, just ever so quickly, I'll try to get in now as soon as I can. I just want to talk about humility and pride, the difference between humility and pride. Humility, by the way, is not weakness. Humility is not shyness, and humility is not lack of confidence. I think a simple definition, and I'll explain what I mean by this, is that somebody who has seen God, humility is somebody who has seen God. You see, when we get a glimpse of God, how great, how grand, how majestic, how almighty, the mystery of God. When we get a glimpse of God, it shuts down pride within us. You see, humility is the door, is the key to, uh, is the door to true greatness. Now, a little bit about humility. Let's go to pride just for a moment because um, pride, I don't know about you, it certainly came as a part of uh, the package in my life. Um, and so it's always ready to rear its ugly head, whether that's a, a Monday or a Thursday, a morning or a night time. But the antidote to pride is exactly that. It's a glimpse of God. You see, when we get a glimpse of God, it cripples pride very, very fast in our lives. Let me give, let me give you two examples of two biblical characters in the Bible. Isaiah is one of them, the great prophet in the Old Testament of the Bible. You can find the story in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, Isaiah gets this glimpse of God. And he has this response. Do you know the story? He has this response to God. It's like, woe is me. Remember that? Woe is me. I I, I am ruined, he says. I am ruined because he gets this glimpse of God. Translated, by the way, to more contemporary contemporary languages is this. Uh Uh-oh. I've seen God. Uh Uh-oh. Woe is me. I am ruined. I, Prophet Isaiah, that's what he said. John, let's go to Revelation chapter 1, the final book in the Bible, the New Testament. John, he gets a glimpse of God, and it says in verse 17 that he fell down as though dead when he got a glimpse of God. You see, getting a glimpse of God resizes us. Once again, went back to 1 Peter 5. I've been camping in one, personally, camping in 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposite. God is opposite to pride, but gives grace to the humble. Both these men, Isaiah and John, knew that they had seen God and figured out in their lives from that moment, it's no longer about, it's not about me. But I also realize that he is for me. So if humility is somebody seeing God, pride is somebody seeing me. Look at me. Like me, listen to me, let me. I'm looking at me more than I'm looking at God. And so glimpses of me fuels pride, yet glimpses of God birth humility. But Steve, shouldn't we be proud of certain things in our lives. I mean, 
I did that. I'm, I'm proud of that. I gave birth to that. Well, I didn't. I, I, no, I, 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 did, I didn't. I didn't. Um, anyway, you get the idea. Can't, shouldn't we be proud of something? The reason that I'm standing here today is because of me. I beg to differ. Let me explain. Because I believe no one here who's ever done anything in life has done it by themselves. No one. 24 years later, speaking personally, I did not get here alone. Karen got me here. Joel got me here. Dorothy got me here. Ben got me here. My parents got me here. The elders got me here. Andrew got me here. Craig got me here. The list goes on and on. These people got me here. I played a very small part in getting myself here. That's not false humility. That is simply the truth. Ultimately, those people who I just mentioned, by the way, if they came up here and said exactly what I said, they would have to go through lists of people's names who also got them to where they are today. But ultimately, it all goes back to God, because he got us here. Without the people around you, you wouldn't have done it. You wouldn't have even made it. Getting the credit every time can be very tiring. Humility is the doorway to greatness. Verse 35, the story goes on. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Press pause because this is not playground kind of stuff. This is not in the playground where you're the last person chosen to be on the sports team. You know what I mean. Jesus is saying, if your desire is to be first... You are the person that must choose to be last. You see, once again, all that they were thinking about was being first. And Jesus says, the way to be first is to be the servant and the servant of all. Now, I think it would be safe to say, wouldn't it not, that this particular attitude certainly doesn't come naturally. Why? Because I really want to be first. And it's hard for me to say, I really want to be last. And so we've got to choose that because we're raised in a culture, aren't we? Where being first is the best. And we've learned very well as people living in this world that if you want to be significant, you have to be first. And so Jesus redefines greatness in his kingdom simply by choosing to be last and being the servant of Now, yes, I get it. Yeah, we get this, Steve, but putting this into practice, voluntarily choosing to be a servant, the flesh, the flesh wants nothing more than to advance myself so that I am significant and that I am important. Humility is the door to true greatness. So, how does the world define greatness? Define greatness Uh, by running after the three Ps. Possessions, power, popularity. That is what makes someone important in the kingdom of man. Now, Paul understood this 
as he wrote to the church in Philippi, chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains, this is Paul, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, let's be very clear what Paul wasn't saying here. He wasn't saying, I lost everything that, excuse me, that I once had. He's saying that I willingly gave it up, that whatever it was that made me significant, whatever it was that made me somebody in the eyes of the world, I'm going to lay that aside so that it might be, I might be found in Christ, not to be found significant in the eyes of man. Now, the best way for Jesus to illustrate this is he takes a child. Now, this might get lost, by the way, in our modern minds because we think differently of children today than they did back then. You see, a child had no rights under the law. Let me explain. Jewish society saw children as being insignificant, unimportant, and with no rights. Okay? So we get the idea. Now, this is when we begin to understand what Jesus is trying to say when he places this child right in the midst of the disciples to make his point by liking kingdom greatness with the social status of a child. Basically, what Jesus is saying is in the kingdom of God, it's not those who possess or have, nothing wrong with that, it's those who give up those who lay aside, those who serve, and those who come as a dependent, humble child. This is what defines greatness. Verse 36 says, He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Before I comment on the statement by Jesus. I want to show how Matthew developed this idea. Once again, this is a parallel gospel here, this story. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, the team, please come um, and, and lead us in a couple of songs, please, in a moment. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This child, this child that Jesus brings before the disciples is going to be the best illustration of humility. Why? Here's why. Think about a child for a moment. A child has no power, no achievement, weak, helpless. They have no resources of their own. They're not overly worried about how they're going to pay the next bill. They are totally dependent. This is the perfect illustration of true greatness. Jesus is saying this is a key. This is a key of the kingdom that you have to be as dependent as a helpless, innocent little child. And the kingdom of God says that you and I need to see ourselves with true and genuine humility, understanding, understanding that we are bankrupt before a gracious, holy, almighty, living God, humbling ourselves before him as he lifts us up. Once again, I want to just speak this over us and hear me clear that Jesus is not opposed to us pursuing greatness. He wants us to pursue greatness, but the way in which we do it, as defined by his kingdom, always 
is to start with the humility of a child. But the question is this. Let's bring it home just for a moment and I'm done. We're going to stand and sing a couple of songs and I'm going to come and lead us in communion again. We're going to have a meal together. It's not a big meal. But the question, I want to bring it to you, to me, to us tonight. And the question is this. If you are going to be great in the kingdom of God, and I want us to think about these questions in these next couple of songs. What is it that you need to do? Where is it that you need to go? Who is it that you need to meet with? How will you use the resources and skills, your resources and skills, to serve others? Because when you do that, then, and only then, you will experience true greatness in the kingdom of God. It's only when we choose the humility of a child to serve that we don't actually lose a thing. In fact, we gain more. And I'm going to come back to Philippians 2 just in a moment. Can we please stand? Is that okay? And sing these couple of songs and join together in a moment in communion.